When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sorry for those ads. If you want the ad-free Team Human team feed, just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You'll also get access to our Discord, live events, and infinite love. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a collective operation intended to denaturalize embedded power, trigger agency, re-socialize people, and cultivate awe in ourselves and everyone else. Let's find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right, another live salon from the Team Human Kibitz Room. You're all invited. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I love doing these Team Human salons. I've been calling this space the Kibitz Room because it feels like the back room of the Team Human barracks or clubhouse, a place we can get together and speak honestly with each other about the issues perplexing us, share notes from the field, successes and failures, questions and concerns. From the outside, it may sound a little bit like call-in radio, where people bring up an issue for me to comment on or give an answer to. But experientially, at least for me, from this side of the microphone, it's more of a community event, an affirmation of solidarity, like a Quaker meeting hall. We're just showing up and sharing space even virtually, is enough to fill that empty place behind the solar plexus, the place that only gets filled when you have other people to lean on, or when you get to be that leaned-on person yourself. There's nothing like logging into the Discord and 
opening the salon and seeing it fill up with some names I recognize and some I don't. It's an honor just to have convened such a thing. And because I speak more than enough at these little gatherings, I'll forego the official weekly monologue and invite you straight into the kibitz room. And yes, at some point in the conversation, there will be a brief word from one of our sponsors. So, hey, everybody, welcome to Team Human and the Team Human Kibitz Room, deep underground in the, uh, well, the fantasy apocalypse bunker. There's no apocalypse bunker because we're avoiding apocalypse altogether. It's just a clubhouse. Got to see a bunch of you just recently. I had such a good time. What was it? Two nights ago at a Digital Void event in New York City. And I'm interested. It, it was this great evening in a nightclub, basically, of kind of stand-up philosophy or stand-up intellectualism or I don't know if that, what you would even call it, sort of all based around what memes are in the stream and how are we dealing with them and what do we think of memes altogether. I mean, I had a great time seeing all these people and it, it really made me feel like Team Human's part of a larger community between a digital void and all tech is human. There's kind of almost a network of similarly intended but differently expressed very kind of pro-human community. I'm under, and so Josh, you, you and Jamie Cohen, who's been a guest on, you guys just founded Digital Void. Just as, how, how, what's the genesis of this thing? The genesis of this is community. The genesis of this is being together with other human beings to try to create space and community around everything from intellectualism to digital media and memes and culture. And the goal of this project is to create public space for intellectuals, reporters, authors, journalists to create counter-programming to a lot of the dominant tech conversations that take place mostly in isolated silos on social media platforms. Mm. And so Jamie and I started this in late 2019. And then Ryan Broderick, also a former Team Human guest, joined us in August 2021. And we've been running in New York City every other month since. Yeah, part of what's so cool about it to me is that there's some kind of marketing or marketing adjacent, anthropological kind of adjacent people who present at this, but it's kind of showing their other side. And and I mean, for me, you know, the, the talk I gave, I'm going to turn it into a monologue, maybe use it for this very kibitz room, was, um, you know, I was really looking at the theme of the night, which was memes, myth and magic. And thinking about how when we first started talking about, even before memes, when we were first talking about media viruses and, and what they are and how they are, it was certainly related to the occult and UFOs and Bigfoot and Chupacabra as those early conspiratorial sort of memes that you would, you know, read in, in the Man, Myth and Magic magazines or on the Art Bell radio show. And then how the viral media, as I saw it, was a way to spread that stuff, this under belly of culture coming up, you know, whether it was sort of the social justice arguments of Rodney King or new gender identifications and the ability of performers from Madonna and Michael Jackson just to, to transform themselves. It was all very occult disinfo, Genesis P. Orridge, you know, William Burroughs cut and paste and how over time it became so much more scientific and businessy and how Dawkins' own 
interpretation of memes, even if he developed the word, is very cold, scientific, uh, ultra materialist and causal. You know, there's no it's not about breaking open the power of the underculture and and challenging the top down culture industry. But this way of sort of programming people and how that led to behavioral economics conferences and online persuasion and and this that what I wrote about finally in Survival of the Richest, which is this techno-solutionist understanding of people, that we will use memes on people, you know, and that's that's what they're for, that these events, the digital void events, are reclaiming these things, all these tools, all these ways of seeing and saying, no, 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 this is, we're taking this back, you know, <laughs> we're going to use this for community and for, you know, celebrating the weird and, you know, it was so wonderful to see that and then to have Mitch Horowitz come up and then talk about, you know, some really practical ways of using magic, which are, again, about standing up for the possible, you know, in the face of this kind of the tyranny of the probable that's being brought to us by AI. It was a really powerful, powerful evening for me, not in the way of like, oh, I saw this movie and it was so powerful, but more powerful the way, you know, going into a, a hot springs, you know, and feeling that that amount of heat from the earth. It's like, oh, ah, community, others, people. It was great. I mean, I see some of the faces here, are people, people who were there. So we're going to we're going to keep that up. We already got Mitch Horowitz to agree to do a um, we're going to do an event with me and him when his new book comes out a live, you know, team human recording and be all let's just be all post COVID about stuff. So um, I'm looking forward to more and seeing and touching more faces as as this continues. The one great thing for me about the writer strike and losing a ton of work and money is that it's cleared up time um, <laughs> to come out <laughs> to come out and play with people. I'd rather be a poorer person who's playing with others than a wealthy person alone with my computer. <laughs> so I'll be seeing everybody soon. Don, thanks so much for being here. How's it going? Yeah. Hello, Douglas. Yeah. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about trying to um, look for the best uh, human qualities where I find them rather than kind of draw a circle around each person and decide whether they're good or bad. And to just try to, yeah, get get the human qualities that I like, get them where I can, even if they come from someone who maybe uh, has some other opinions or qualities that uh, maybe don't... Uh, nourish me so much. And um, insofar as that's the case, I've recently become acquainted with the uh, work and ideas of a man named Walter Kern, who uh, quite interested and also because uh, he has some political opinions, I think maybe wouldn't jive with myself or maybe some of us here. And I had this idea, I wonder what how, what Douglas Rushkoff might think of him because he seems to have somewhat of a, a team human-esque ethos. And I only found out recently that you do in fact have quite a history with him. And I'd like to know what your opinion is uh, on, on kind of where he's gone in, in his uh, intellectual life and what do you think about bridging gaps between uh, people who might have share some opinions and, and not others, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean it's a it would be a long story, but yeah, I've known Walter since uh like you know 1980, right? Since mm. you now we're babies in college. I was running this basement theater called Wilson College Theater and he kind of wandered in 
And, you know, we sort of instantly bonded. I started directing plays that he wrote. And over the years, I mean, we did that right through, you know, grad school and beyond and have always been kind of intellectual, spiritual and psychedelic partners. I mean, he would get really busy over time or really involved with one thing or another. He moved to Montana and, um, you know, we would lose touch for a couple of years. But then it's that kind of person. Then you reconnect with after you haven't seen them for two or three years. And it's just, you know, like yesterday. And you, you know, end up having these really deep conversations. And we both got interested in interactivity in slightly different ways. But the same general idea, because we're both witnessing what, what happened as, as authors, as writers, to be migrating into a media environment where people want to interact with what you're doing. How do you adjust with that? How do you create? What do you, do you choose your own adventure novel? Do you become an internet writer or artist? Or do you develop games? And moreover, looking at culture as culture became more interactive and I guess the, the, we both felt kind of like outsiders, I think, particularly, you know, we went to Princeton, which was like very insidery. And I'm the little kind of, you know, public school Jew. And he felt like the Midwest boy in the cowboy boots, you know, like a, well, he felt like a farm kid there, but like unsophisticated, even though most of the campus was looking at him as like the writer to be, you know, the, the ultimate like kind of, I don't know, J.D. Salinger to come or somebody or, or the next Fitzgerald. I don't think he felt like that. He felt like a bumpkin out there not able to get in. And we had, you know, years of that. And I guess for me, I ended up later in life kind of moving into more of a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a little bit of a social justice direction, I guess. And he, because he was up in Montana and looking at the problems of government, I think he moved more in, in what we'd call a more kind of red statey version of things. I was a little bit more of a succession audience and, you know, he would would have been more of a uh, Yellowstone audience, I guess, you know, looking at the same corruption from slightly different angles. And then, you know, when the Trump thing happened, we were both pretty shocked. You know, he got really interested in, in QAnon um, originally as a kind of a interactive game. It's like QAnon was like the ultimate interactive novel. They finally figured out how to use this medium in a creative way. But I think it also, as that was happening and Trump was happening and COVID was happening and various kinds of feelings like lockdowns and government control was happening and Walter's dad died in the middle of that in a very traumatic way, he became a little bit less tolerant of where I was at. And we kind of disconnected really for the last two years or so. And just met up again at Norton. The Norton Publishing had a party. And we met up there and kind of had a hug and, and both apologized, you know, for me, for, I guess, being afraid of where he went and him for being kind of mean to me uh, <laughs> that, that I wasn't going that same place. I think he felt like I was naive about it. But, you know, he's really super smart. The interesting thing is he's doing now, he's doing a kind of a podcast with Matt Taibbi. And if anything, he's the guy pulling Matt Taibbi back towards <laughs> towards the center. You know, some of these guys, you know, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and Andrew Sullivan and Barry Weiss, I get 
you know, they've had like really traumatic and negative experiences with sort of mainstream media and they're out there in a particular way. But I mean, I find a lot of what they write and say, I kind of bristle at a lot of it. It feels kind of brittle to me and maybe not the best way through where we're going. You know, those sort of writers, I feel like they find, they cherry pick some bad thing. Oh, there's a school and a place where someone had to get, they had to get rid of the Simpsons graphic novel and therefore, you know, society's coming apart. It's like, well, these things happen. They, they didn't want us to do Godspell in middle school when I was directing theater. It's like, it's always, these things are always there. So, I'm interested to see, you know, I had gotten alienated from his stuff because it felt like the kind of Mormon Americana that has been infused with his work from the beginning. It started to feel a little bit like it was, whether consciously or unconsciously, feeding into a kind of a right wing anger. I mean, the same way I get worried for my friend David Zweig, who writes about vaccine overprotection and the school shutdowns from a critical perspective. I'm like, yeah, but do you see how you're also playing into this other argument? But I'm really intrigued to see where it goes next. I know he's um, thinking about starting a new magazine with some interesting people and really intrigued by the idea of working with him again now that things are a little bit less brittle. In some ways, I even took the fact that Walter and I hugged again and and kind of said we're sorry as as maybe it's also a rapprochement of this right, left, red, blue thing that's been going on in America. Maybe we can push through that. I mean, he's my age, so it's not like the old Trumpy uncle at Thanksgiving that, you know, you're having trouble forgiving. It's, it's, and he's not a Trumpy even. He's just someone who is more acutely aware of the crimes of the left, I think, than I am, or the crimes of the sort of urban dwellers as opposed to country dwellers. But man, there's a lot wrong with everybody. But I mean, the beauty is, as you suggest when you started, and there's a lot right in everybody. You know, where I thought you were going with that is where I was going to go was um, like, if you can't be with the love one you love, love the one you're with, you know, which is sort of at the end of Team Human, I talk a lot about that. I mean, not using those words, but, you know, whoever you're confronting, once you see the human in them, once you can see the human face, it can transform your ability to engage with them effectively, whether you agree or not. You know, it's not all hands around the world. Oh, we're all agree about everything. But if you can find the human there. It's certainly a lot. It's a great beginning. So yeah, it's an interesting moment. Just right after, uh, this is the best time to ask about Walter because I'm just returning. He's, I mentioned him in one of these, uh, I was doing a podcast about, oh, I did a, an article about Biden trying to argue that Biden was actually smart because I had met him and he was really crazy smart when I met him and I made a list. I said, the only people I've ever met who were as smart as that, I said, you know, of Elizabeth Wurzel, someone else and, and Walter Kern. And I was, uh, it's funny. So it, it felt good to be able to, you know, to say his name in purely positive way. And he's been on the show. I mean, you can find out a lot about him and how he and I interact on this double episode we did, uh, gosh, like three, four years ago. But thanks. Yeah. No, Walter's definitely, he's definitely on Team Human. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, thanks, thanks a lot. Sorry I went on so long. It's a long thing. You know, you know someone for 30 years or whatever, 35 years, it's uh, 40 years. It's a whole thing. Brenna, hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. I kind of wanted to bring in the reason I started listening to your podcast and um, just kind of talk about the central struggle that I've kind of dealt with for the last 15 or so years, mm. which is denaturalizing power in a place where it's really hard to denaturalize, which is the comedy community. Oof. Basically, the naturalized power is like very, very, it's fun. So in most of our communities, you know, it's easy to denaturalize things because I find that using fun is a good tool for that. In, in an academic space, you can be the dumbest person there and it will allow people to make mistakes and talk in ways that are um, less academic. But in comedy, fun is the kind of thing that's destroying people. So I basically, I had kind of a crisis of conscience about doing comedy back in 2014. And I quit because I found that we were being really extractive of each other and we were prioritizing being fun and exciting over being okay. And uh, what happened was I would start doing these improv scenes and I would de-escalate bits and get less and less funny because I would see my scene partner being uncomfortable. I would just de-escalate it. And I have recently kind of ventured back out into the comedy world not in a performance capacity, but just in a social capacity. And and I'm trying very hard to kind of, mm. yeah, denaturalize that that pressure to be funny and allow people to be sad. And I think that's something that I've struggled with a lot. Wow. I mean, that's really deep. I mean, gosh, there's so many different levels. I mean, I know about the whole kind of Upright Citizen Brigade mm -hmm. scene and for better and for worse, there's it's a pyramidal structure, yeah. if you know yep. what I mean. <laughs> the way you work your way up, you know, it's a little bit, you know, that's, that's what's rather than saying anything mean about anybody, it's like with yoga, you know, it's like you do your thousand hours of classroom work with these teachers. So then you go up to this other level and then you do, you know, then you do these teaching hours supervised by those ones. And there's a, a money element to it mm -hmm. that does bring on it's just it fosters that slightly est cult like thing on you know that you're moving up because you are increasingly committed to the values of the pyramid mm -hmm. and i wrote about this in coercion the problem is then you can only kind of be fully honest with people who are above you in the pyramid mm -hmm. and you have to be almost slightly condescending or mean to people below you in the pyramid and you can't show any doubt in the values of the thing. Mm -hmm. And I know what that's like, even in theater. It's like the play is the thing. The play is the thing. No, he's got mono. Let him <laughs> fucking stay home. You know? mm -hmm. It's like as if you're not committed to it. And then in comedy, it can excuse a sort of a Don Rickles-like meanness. It's not fair. I experienced it when I visited a long, 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 long time ago. I visited the uh, Simpsons writer's room mm -hmm. and... 
it was a fucking rough place. Oh my God. I was, I had always wanted to like have a job like that. I would never, I couldn't survive half an hour in there. It's like competitive comedy, but they're picking on each other too. And they're, it's like some Harvard lampoon culture macho scary oh my god thing that it's not just pressure to be funny but it's you're almost like humorfully violent to the other people who aren't being funny enough mm-hmm. it's like oh my god it's so scary and it's like right and then i think what we realize is like you're saying and this is something i've been realizing a lot too is almost all of these forms of performance are the excuses to be in a room together kind of caring about each other mm-hmm. that when you a stand up comedian like my friend you know greg barris he just gets up there or duncan trussell and they're just honest it's this excuse to be honest and open and bear your heart there's another kind of comedy that comes from everybody together recognizing oh my aren't we aren't we funny you know (laughs) aren't we funny the reason that i started listening to your stuff is because i've noticed very very recently that audiences and performers have become really hostile toward each other. And I think some of that is things like TikTok prioritize comics who take down hecklers. So they'll have, you know, oh, this person went viral because they they took down this guy who was being a jerk. So now stand-ups start being proactive and they start trying to incite heckling and they start doing invasive audience bits. And then we have this kind of antagonistic relationship between the two you know, factions instead of connecting emotionally. And the reason that I found your podcast is because I was at a live show back in September and um, someone was doing something very emotionally vulnerable on stage and the audience just felt so detached from it. Mm. But Bo Burnham was in the back and he just quietly told the guy he didn't have to do it. And it changed the register of that show. And it seems like something that's like very necessary Anyway, I was just like, I got to see what this dude's reading. But like, (laughs) yeah, it just feels necessary. And it doesn't feel like we should have to have a spotter at our shows for that kind of stuff. But it is almost becoming necessary for people who are quiet to not just be passive about it. They have to be active about it. Yeah. It was funny. Mitch Horowitz was just saying in his magical technologies to, you know, cut mean people out of your life, (laughs) that there's no time for meanness. It's not negative. I got tons of negative people. Kvetchers. That's fine. They, everyone, there's kvetchers are just, that's, that's, I mean, I'm Jewish. It's part of our thing, but meanness is so unnecessary. And just to think, wow, somebody's mean, even like funny mean. And he actually, the way he said it, that they kind of make these jokes, but they're sort of at your expense. That's really bad for you. you know? <laughs> it's really bad to move away from that. I mean, Bo's work is so not mean. It's weird, though, just at the same thing I was talking about, the meme of the moment, a uh, digital void thing I did, the memes, myth, and magic. That was one of the meanest talks I'd ever done. I was doing a full takedown of, of Richard Dawkins, <laughs> and I think I would do it much more likely to do it live. And I had a, you know, his little picture up there on, on the Lolita Express to sort of make my argument that the godless, soulless, materialist, anti-moral take on humanity can get you into trouble, right? You're going to end up with strange bedfellows. So you'll end up uh, getting funded by Epstein because he also appreciates the, uh, <laughs> the non-karmic understanding of our world. But it was me being extra mean. And I was like, is that 
I don't know. Is that okay? Because most of what I do is so pro everybody. But um, so I'm experimenting with it in live performance. It's funny that you come up right now because I'm still feeling a little bit guilty about being mean to somebody, but certainly not in the room, you know, only only behind their back. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't care anyway. He doesn't. There's someone like him. It's like it's like being mean to Trump or somebody. Uh, I don't think they I don't think they feel my my meanness the way the way Mm -hmm. a, a regular person would. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, the whole, I've been thinking so much about safe spaces Mm -hmm. and laughter should be a safe, that should be, I mean, that's a, that's another sacred space, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that place where people are laughing because laughing is such a, an open vulnerable, like laughing is like an orgasm or a sneeze. You almost want to say, God bless you after someone laughs because they've, they're just as open. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's a strange, it's an interesting moment for people to leverage for cruelty or for people to leverage cruelty just to get that response out of people. Because I think the laugh that you have that you're when you're looking at someone being bullied is a very different laugh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it may not be the one that we want. It's a toothy laugh. Mm-hmm. It may not be the one that we want to be uh, uh, promoting with our work. I appreciate that. This is interesting. Between that and then the Walter becoming, you know, friends again after our political estrangement. This is interesting themes are emerging in this in this one. And there's a bunch of hands, so we should continue on. But uh, but I'll see you next time, Brennan. Thanks. And thanks so much for the tunes. Yeah. We're going to be using more of those. Yeah. (laughs) All right. uh, Bafo. Hello. Hello. Hey. I think in keeping with the theme that I've been... (laughs) Coming up, I was recently exposed to this, I guess, rabbi who was giving a talk about the Jewish ethical tradition of Musar. And I was wondering if you've ever heard of that or have any thoughts on it. Well, explain what it is. It seems like a meditative sort of introspective tradition to, I guess, like try and think about your everyday actions in um, like less of a, I guess in the Jewish tradition, less of like a, I'm following the rules and uh, that makes me good. And more of like a, Hey, am I treating the people around me? Well, (laughs) that's what makes me good. Right. It's funny as an intellectual, I have legalistic ethical framework around Judaism. Like for me, if, if you're like, Anything you're doing when you're singing and dancing or touching God or having spiritual experience, I've always said, you know, that's fine, but it's all about does it make you act more ethically in the world? And anything you're doing, it's so that you stand up, hineni, here I am, I'm going to defend the weak and the righteous and promote ethics everywhere I go. And Musar, as I understand it, is sort of like the ethical takeaway of Judaism. And I think it was a medieval thing. I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was sort of like, there's also a book here, Pirkei Avot, that the rabbis are going to yell at me for probably mispronouncing and mis saying what it is. But it always seemed like a really simple, almost like a Dhammapada of Judaism. This is funny. I'm going to use a Buddhist reference. Okay. As if now we all know that. It's basically the maxims, like just do this, do this stuff. Here's how to think about it. 
And I'm all for it. As I've gotten older, I guess, I've realized that Judaism is more than that. Spirituality is more than that. And there's a value. Ecstatic experience is valuable in its own for its own sake. It's just some weird little guilt I've had as a little kid since blowing out the candles on my like seventh year birthday party, thinking, how dare I blow out candles on a cake when there's people starving in Biafra? So I wanted everything I do to always be somehow helping someone else and always tie it in. And and for the Musar, it's sort of like that. It's like, how does it fit into tikkun olam or making the world better or promoting an ethical way through the world? And not everything has to do that. It's also okay to do stuff, you know, lishma, as the rabbis would say, for their own sake. You know, great rabbis were asked, why, why read Torah? Is it, you know, to, to understand our history or is it to behave more ethically in the world? And that, like, the biggest, best coolest of the rabbis said, oh, you do it. You only read Torah to read Torah. You know, why else would you read Torah? And there's that. But yeah, I'm all into the ethical application. And, and you know, listen back to the, the Sarah Pessin episode, which is really interesting to me on how it's almost impossible to develop ethical framework legalistically. And, you know, and Christ tried to do it like heart-wise, saying, don't worry about the law, just do it with your heart. And what Sarah Pessin talks a lot about is your comportment, the way in which you engage with other people is the way that you enact ethics in some ways, you know, that, that that matters more than almost any of the content of your actions. That's really powerful for me, too. But yeah, I'm certainly, if you had to pick you know, one way of set of prerogatives. I mean, behaving ethically is, you know, that's way down there on Maslow's hierarchy of collective needs, right? And yeah, <laughs> until yeah. you, until a person develops it instinctively, which is hard, especially under pressure, I think it's great to have some even memorized sort of ethical template to help navigate because it's so complex right now. It's really hard to behave appropriately under all circumstances, you know, and, and some kind of simple 2,000-year-old approaches to these things. It makes you realize that, oh, AI is nothing new. You know, mm. the Pharaoh yeah. was an AI. The plagues were to get rid of AIs. You know, uh, this is nothing new. So, so I love an old ethical template like that because it just helps you see, oh, we've been, we, this is normal. This is, yeah. <laughs> this uh, is humans dealing it. Yeah. I've always appreciated that aspect that you bring to looking at AI I like that. I appreciate that a lot. And uh, I also really like Sarah Pesson. And thanks for introducing me to her work. Yeah, I should bring her back. Even she did a live kibitz room once that we we I don't think we recorded it. It was just like yeah. a, we were starting to do a thing where we would have guests come afterwards and do uh two or three people did that. We should start that up again. That'd be fun. Even record them as then put them as bonus tracks or something. Yeah. Who we got? RZ eleven twenty two. It was great to see you at the Digital Void two nights ago. Yes, it was really awesome. Haven't been sort of in the city since post-COVID stuff. And uh, it was just really exciting to get together in person, in real life, as they say. And mm. yeah, part of my, you know, a lot of the inspiration I've been writing on since that event, you know, in terms of your talk around the power of magical thinking, you touched on, you know, historically Art Bell and the Chupacabra and the UFO phenomena. And it got me thinking about the real existential AI, you know, in a post fact, post reason, incoherent, chaotic maelstrom, so to speak, the real existential AI is alien invasion. We're, <laughs> we're in a cultural moment where these disclosures, so to speak, are coming through the traditional channels, but they still feel 
like conspiracy. Like you don't know what to believe. Like why, why now? And um, yeah, I was just curious if you had a, a media eye view, a cultural perspective on, you know, why, what do you make of all of this? These crafts and UFOs and all that stuff on the news. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I always felt like UFOs are in some ways a generic meme that they show up at various moments in culture when we're dealing with a new unknown or a new phenomenon. So, you know, they came after the atomic bomb, right? That was the first big wave of UFOs. And that's because people were looking in the sky, waiting for the Russians to come. You know, that it was the, the first wave. The second wave was, you know, Sputnik era, when we were finally, you know, launching things into space. And now we're genuinely space concerned. People were scared that Russia was going to put a sickle on the moon or they actually did. That's why they started teaching calculus in uh, high school in America. They changed the math program so that we could build, win the space race. That's what that was that was what that was all about and part of what's uh, led to the the stem thing but then again then i remember and i wrote about this gosh in playing the future there was another big boom of it after roe v wade which i thought was interesting i thought like oh wow you know people are kind of freaked out and that's when the little aliens that look like those weird little baby sort of things and i was thinking wow are we dealing with some weird cultural confusion over this is that are we had the discussion appropriately what are we thinking is going on here what what are we worried about and then you know then there was another one with the birth of the internet and that's the x-files era and now another one right another one with the birth of ai so i don't know I mean, I don't think that it's they're coming because that they are coming because these things are happening. I feel like that the UFO metaphor becomes a more frequent way of explaining the inexplicable when there's a rise in this in novelty of this sort, when human beings feel uh when we're made conscious again of our humanity, either our humanity, our power, our existential abilities, you know, our, our power over life and death. So it's certainly it, it's predictable that that would happen. And, I, and VR seems to now join in <laughs> VR and the idea of moving in. Is this a simulation simulation theory and all that seems to come along with uh, UFOs now as a new thing? Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think in terms of it being a bit more of an immaterial, sort of interdimensional, even psychic phenomena, certainly resonates with, with a lot of what you're saying and, and my own thinking around it. It's just strange when you then have, you know, leaks about crafts and pilots and meat and, you know, hardware kind of discussions around the phenomena. I wonder how much of that we can lend credence to, even if it's coming through, I guess, more traditional channels. And it, it certainly um, had me curious about your thoughts on it, because I don't think you've really weighed in on the UFO phenomena. So I appreciate you taking the time here. Yeah, I always wanted to be taken, you know, <laughs> or not hurt, not like I don't want them to put probes in my butt or do something right. horrible to me. But <laughs> to see them for real, you know, or to do the close encounters thing, I'd put on the thing and go in the spaceship and see, you know, so that hasn't happened. But it was funny. I said something weird in my talk the other night about how I don't want trans people to feel required to find like DNA or chromosomal evidence 
of what they are. You know, there's some conversations about, you know, what happens in the womb and certain kinds of things that that would account for feeling like you're in the wrong gender body and all that. And I'm like, fine, you can do that if you want. It's fine. It's cool to find that. But I don't want anyone to feel like required to do that. And at the same time, I don't want us to need some kind of physical evidence for UFOs to be valuable, you know, that, that, right. <laughs> that what if they're, they could be immaterial and something else, or, you know, I want them to be like fairy realm things like devas or rather than space travel, you know, right. it's, it's like Star Trek space travel and metal ships that crash on the ground. And it's like, no, what if they just sort of pop in like an entity and there's, they're more interdimensional wormholy things or not even that they're like mythology or thought structures coalescing you know i want the real the genuinely alien possibilities to be kept alive rather than just oh some dudes on a planet over there bang together a metal ship and put gas in it and got here it's like oh come on that's that's the most boring of the possibilities to me. Although it'd still be cool to have neighbors, you know, to have other not terrestrials. Like, I don't know what you would call them, physicals, right. other things of the of the physical world, as opposed to the, the only visitors we could get are like, you know, through my mycelial, uh, <laughs> you know, mycelial hyperdimensional networks. So we'll see. But yeah, that's my thought on it. Let it rip, you know, let it rip, but keep the UFOs as weird as possible rather than uh, getting too dilithium crystal with it. <laughs> uh, I agree. That's awesome, Doug. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I know. It's like Q. Q. I mean, it was perfect they called him Q. It's before they probably even knew what Q mm. meant. But Q is a Star Trek alien. You know, he's not in our time. He's not even in, in living in time. It's like this whole other thing. It's like, there you go. That's the kind of aliens I want to meet. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. I'll see you next time, though. All right? See you soon. It was great to see you. Thanks, sir. Who else we got, Josh? Jim has been invited to the stage. Jim who I finally saw live for the first time in real life. I've known Jim for what, 12 years, 15 years since some, some of those, yeah, early crypt. You're the one who explained to me what, what proof of stake is. <laughs> and you were so reluctant to do it. He's like, Jim is this guy who he'll like spark your interest. And then you'll say, okay, it's explain that. And he says, well, actually that'd be better explained if you join this discord and talk to these people and those ones, he immediately passes you off onto people. And it's an, I know you're not doing it because they know better than you. You're doing it because you're trying to weave together communities. He's really, he's way better at me at that, at like bringing people to one another, you know, sort of orchestrating networks of like-minded people. Cause he's smart enough to know we can't do this alone. So thanks for that ongoing life lesson, Jim. Yeah. And also I have some trepidation. I mean, proof of stake still favors the rich <laughs> Yeah, in its own way. So, I mean, it doesn't have to, but it tends to, you know, I'm still yeah. an advocate of proof of proof. And um, <laughs> now that's become proof of intelligence. Oh my gosh. You know, doing useful work to uh, gain consensus rather than, uh, busy work and burning electricity. Right. Imagine that. You mean there's still stuff that needs to be done? You mean like people to be fed and topsoil to be <laughs> replenished? And yeah, gosh, imagine that. Focusing on stuff that needs to be done. Oh, geez. Someone's got to tell the, the White House. Yeah. This is good. A lot of things have come up here. I mean, the idea of 
power of magic sparked a lot of things in me. Um, discussion here today, I was a staunch atheist as a teenager, and uh, it wasn't until I lived with witches that I had to accept <laughs> spiritualism, and I had to realize that what they call mass hysteria is a communal mind where everybody mm. sees and feels the same thing, but it's not real. It's not physical. As a scientist, I came from a scientific family, scientific background, and I wanted to test this. I mean, I had so many experiences that science couldn't explain, and it took me 20 years to put it back together again. But one of the experiences I had, and it was through meditation, but it was so real, where I uh, encountered aliens who had projected themselves into my realm who were from the early universe and they were very tiny hot fast beings which <laughs> in order to communicate with me they had to project this really slowed down version of themselves and in any case i mean it was so real that i'm almost confused as to whether it was real or not and then i was reading in the gospel of thomas the disciples asked jesus why does god reveal himself to us in parables. And Jesus replied something akin to, because the truth is beyond words. Not exactly that way, but mm -hmm. in essence. And I realized that our fantasy world that we create for ourselves, and we each have one, is largely a fabrication, almost a parable of the actual world. But we bring things into being by naming them. And it, you know, in my atheist days, I was a total hedonist. As I became a spiritualist, the center of my being sort of moved outside my body into the spirit of man, into the spirit of humanity, where the more I live, the more I realize that there's intelligence in everything. And we actually are uncovering the science that justifies that magic that there's a link between consciousness and quantum systems which we don't fully understand but it's certainly felt by many scientists and now it's being mathematically defined which is scary yeah i want to let me let me respond to some of this because it's, it's uh we could do and we should spend the the night together. We're on, we've like moved into the Art Bell territory here. It's mm. <laughs> my original radio. Well, Gene Shepard was my original radio days, I guess. But Art Bell came shortly after. It's interesting. The, what what I started to think about, and I've often thought about this idea that this quantum continuum thing going on, and then you bring something down from quantum possibility into a hardened state of reality by naming it, which is you know, as in the even in the chat and the Discord, so was talking about right god made the word world with words i think you know you memify it right by naming it there's other ways to memify it 
Right, right. There are. But naming things, is, as Throw Me the Eggs is saying, naming things is the ultimate magical act. It allows for conceptualization and naming things. You know, God named things and brought them into existence. God made the—you could translate the Bible. You know, God made the, the world with it with a word, you know, by speaking. The words, the words made things. But the other thing I was going to say, and to tie it into some of this fantasy stuff, I agree that as from Kant or whoever onward would agree, our reality is a projection, you know, the best that we can. You know, we, we're not seeing what's going on. We are kind of conjuring a picture of what's going on based on various sensory stimuli. But that fabrication, I'm starting to think of a, a lot about the gut biome, you know, and how there's all these bacteria in there and the way you feel and whether you get jet lag and, and how sexy you are. All this stuff is not just you, you know, your chromosomes. It's this culture that you're teeming with and walking around with. And what if there's basically a gut biome of thought? So it's not just you, you know, what if aliens are able to, you know, they're just, aliens are just like not necessarily bacteria, but whatever else is participating in that, in that projection process, you know, the, all the other beings, you know, and when they really get, if they're, you know, powerful or really present, then of course, and what are you seeing then? So it's just a, it's an, they're participating in the way you see what there is. So if you've got certain kinds of things, you will see the tree and the branches on the tree as moving their little fingers consciously. If you're looking through a different gut biome of thought, you'll see, oh, well, the branches are responding to the wind, you know, and another gut biome, oh, the wind is a spirit moving through the tree. So, it, you know, and, and all of them are true and none of them are singular. So it's a, um, and once you think of, of it in, in just one little case and you realize everything is that way. But yeah, and it's, to me, it's fun sometimes to find the scientific underpinnings of things and to go, oh, this is actually what might be happening. And certainly as a, and I would argue I'm kind of an atheist too, as a fellow atheist, I, I'm tempted and I look at those and I'm thrilled by them, but I'm also really thrilled to let go of them and just to kind of let, let the weird rip. Um. <laughs> the, the scientific reality that we've uncovered is that there are complex quantum logical systems at every distinct frequency that are beyond our wildest dreams. Right. We just can't, we can't fathom it. It's just so much there. And what we see is so barren in our world compared to the intelligence of the universe itself. I mean, we've been looking at genetic memory now, how, how the things that benefit an individual are actually, actually passed down to their children and their children's children. And, you know, there's genetic modifications from our life experience. And this is, something we may have imagined because where do we get our instincts from but the fact that we can have evolution happening in one generation yeah. is a new understanding which is i guess a little off track here no i mean but yeah but to the point though it's something that we understood metaphorically in the sins of the father revisited upon the child and um we can say it we can memify it scientifically <laughs> if we choose to you know right. but i want to get to the to the last people Thank you for the content. I know you're paying to deliver, and that that <laughs> means a lot to me. Yeah, and really, thanks to everybody who's in here. I know it's it actually we're, we're charging money to be in this community, and I feel kind of terrible about that. But if you couldn't afford it, we would, you know, you would let us know. We would somehow get you in. But I appreciate it. All right, let's go to T. 
Hi, Douglas. Hey. To introduce myself, I actually grew up up the river from you in a little town of Croton on Hudson. Oh. But I now have been in the belly of the beast in San Francisco for the last uh, 15 years. And I have thought a lot about survival of the richest. And in a way, like I've been doing my own sort of study of a lot of the philosophy and the experience of just being like a part of this culture. And I think one of the that was so interesting to me, and I thought it was so effective actually in the book, was in which you're able to caricature these billionaires because, like, truly, there's something very ridiculous like uh, about them, and in many ways, just the complete lack of vision and just sort of the hollowness, like at the at the core of it. I do find myself like wondering what we can do like as a as a community to each other to like question like the ethics of what we're doing and really think about like a more positive vision that goes beyond the extractive you know capitalism because i saw personally how easy it was to get sucked into that yeah it's funny you know i just was just reading a uh, a review one of the early but really smart reviews of team human and i forgot what it was it might be plowshares or la review of books or something and the one thing that the guy was concerned about was that the billionaires were painted so funny like cartoonesque caricatures that we didn't really go deep into what are they really think? How are they feeling and all that? These historical elements and, you know, uh, Francis Bacon and Ayn Rand and a bunch of other influences and, and a bit of Stanford create these kind of cardboard cutout, you know, tech bro, you know, want to be billionaire, techno solutionist, women fearing jerks. But the, the part of the problem is you actually meet them and they are. They are, they've been oversimplified in some ways by their own activities. And again, it reminds me back of um, Bible, you know, the Pharaoh, and God says, oh, I'm going to, don't worry, Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. And that meant he was going to kind of turn Pharaoh into a caricature who had no free will anymore. He's just going to be, Pharaoh's going to be a cartoon bad guy, incapable of thinking. And I feel like that's what they do to themselves. They turn themselves into AIs. They turn themselves into something hollow and shallow. And you have to, otherwise you're going to end up with a reckoning like you just had, you know, or that you had went out a few years ago of like, if you're going to keep it alive, that sense of humanity, then it's going to force you to stop doing that. You're going to have to start looking at, well, what's the purpose of this? Why am I doing this? You know, the beyond even the utilitarian, what is my impact on the whole? How am I helping humanity? And it's hopefully that comes to people early enough in their lives that they can figure out how to <laughs> stay alive doing it. I mean, as we all know, like the more good for humanity it feels, the harder it is <laughs> sometimes to make it a gig. You know, it's like, what place can I compromise to make it less that? But yeah, I mean, part of the reason I, I made these dudes so funny and I picked the funniest episodes with the dudes for the book was so that people could laugh at them rather than feel threatened by them. Like uh, Mike Judge's Silicon Valley show where you see it all and it's like, oh, you know, they don't look like super genius, you know, super villain threats anymore. They're just, oh, my gosh, if this is the life they're living one, I'm totally freed from having to aspire to that because it's not fun. What's the point? So I've got a tr trillion billion dollars. Grimes is my ex, you know, and I own Twitter. 
does that make you happy? Is that what is that? <laughs> what? I would get, and, and look at the amount of damage. And I'm seeing them. I should have some of the people who run these things on. There are alliances of engineers now looking at, well, if the engineers have the power, which they do, the real developers, the people who know know code, if they develop a code of ethics together um, and it becomes impossible for the kinds of companies you're talking about to even find any good union developer to hire because no one wants to do that shit anymore, boy, you know, and then we're talking. And plus, so many of these are technologies of mind. So we are changing our ability to perceive what's happening to us with the tools of oppression. You know, it's a little bit different. You know, the, the railroad maybe changed the way we thought about the world some, but not quite as directly, you know, linked into our neocortex. There's a couple of more plates spinning, or it's like the gyroscope that we live in has one or two more spinning things in other other angular momentum directions. It's like, oh, and we all kind of feel, oh, I'm a little, I'm getting a little seasick here. You know, novelty, the novelty is happening in a novel way. It's like an extra, we've gone meta on ourselves here. So it's, it's a little trickier. But I'm glad you came back from the brink. Even if you're not a billionaire, you are wealthy in spirit and love. Yes, thank you. And thanks for giving me the space. So MWL, who is that? Uh, it's Michael. Michael. We talked about hey. 14 years ago about Delhi dollars up the Hudson. You were pretty hot on money at the time, but a few months ago, I saw that you and Janelle Orsi had both sort of figured you can't do anything about money in America. Let's uh, and you seem to drop it. Any comments? Well, I didn't completely drop it. I get. I understand where she's coming from because she mm-hmm. really tried oh, yeah. using every pulley and lever in the economic system to figure out a way, how can we help engender people investing in their own communities? How can we do this? How can we do that? And I agree that there may not be, I don't think there's a way to financialize for good. I think that is too hard. But if anything, it convinced me, just don't try to do these things at scale. You know, for now, Because so many of us, I really feel like 99% of us have the ability to slowly change how we do what we do, you know, how we get our entertainment, how we get our food, how we make our livings, who we support in our neighborhoods, that we could shift so much more of our activity still. To this day, I believe we could shift so much of our activity from this sort of financialized economy of Walmart and Target and all those things to the uh, real social economy of people doing things for each other and all. So it wasn't enough, that conversation with Janet, it wasn't enough to dash my hopes on that. The holy grail that I I'd been looking at for a long time that I kind of have given up on is, well, what if we just get everyone to take their, you know, 401k plan and all those mutual funds and ETFs and stuff that they're in? All the good people I know, all the lefties, all the foundation people, they all have retirement plans at Fidelity and Charles Schwab and here and there. And I'm thinking everybody's doing more damage with their capital than they can possibly do good with their foundation and nonprofit and philanthropic work. So why don't we just move the money? Let's just move just to take a trillion dollars and move it out of the S&P 500 into local economic things. And I get why there's not an easy way to make an instrument to do that. It'd be really hard to make a, a ticker. What if there was an easy instrument, Douglas? Would that, would that appeal? 
It would. I mean, it would. And a few people I was talking with, Institute for the Future, still believe there are ways to do it. You create sort of land trusts and other things, that there's ways that are certainly, if not perfect in, in Janet's eyes, certainly less abusive. And yeah, if there were, you know, I'm all in, you know, where I'm investing in ways that aren't even investing, that are just investing in people. And I guess, you know, pay for someone's college education or help them through this time, and then maybe they'll be there for me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm in a wheelchair and need help with rent. Yeah. But but you seem to have something on, do you have a, a mechanism you're thinking of? Basically, get out of the nouns. Money as a noun, property as a thing, ownership, division, control. Mm-hmm. We need to move into verbs, a flow process. And so money that is a connective network that enables flow in contributive cycles rather than extractive power-based colonialism. So basically, I think there's an awful lot we can do here very easily, very quickly, if we just um, shift the goggles a little. Oh, great. I really look forward to more on this specific, the meme of money. What the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, and I'd buy that. And, you know, and, and just to bring things full circle here, I mean, going back to, you know, Musar and d- Jewish ethics mm-hmm. and all, mm-hmm. the Jewish ethical template was really developed for a Bedouin verb based civilization, right? The Bedouin Israelites who were always moving. They had no land. They were more like indigenous peoples who migrated and around. How are they going to adapt to a civilization where now there's farming and land and ownership and writing? So writing makes contracts and property mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and division of labor. How are we going to deal with all that? How are we going to stay verbified, right? So they have all these, the Jewish ethics could be looked at as a way of how do we keep it alive? The Israelite Torah is written in flame, letter of flame, as if to say they're not solid. They're always active, always moving. The the mana of the in the desert. You don't save the stuff. You eat what you need and move on and trust it's going to keep coming. You know that that's the sort of the repetitive message is what you're saying mm-hmm. is keeping it a verb, keeping it in RAM. You know, active RAM rather than stuck on the hard drive. And to do that, you need instead of of having your feeling of safety being your the thing that's back in your den, your feeling of safety is the other people who are there, you know, which brings us to the central theme of this whole friggin' enterprise, which is you find your security in other people. Yeah. They are not the threat to you security. They're the only friggin' foundation for it that you're going to find. And yes, they move around. And yes, they're uncomfortable to deal with. And yes, you're going to differ with them. But the others are, are all you have. You know, they're not the people banging on the door of your bomb shelter. They're the people who are going to help keep you uh, fed and nourished and and conscious so um i'm all for that let's i'm we'll keep talking about about money or replacements for money i think uh yeah let's definitely keep that conversation alive but i've gone over time here i've got a a, a, the team of producers who are tugging at my shirts and poking me with things to stop to stop to stop so um so I will say, gosh, thank you. It means so much to me to do these. I was originally concerned at the very beginning, do these things count as episodes? Because I haven't gone and found a guest and done research and all that. But from the email I'm getting, people are liking these as much or better than our official ones, whatever they are. So these are part of the canon officially. You know what I mean? These are not extra. These are not bonus. These are, this is legit team human. We are running on all cylinders here. So thanks for that. Thanks for um 
um, helping make this thing and being. And thanks for, for being this thing. Um, we're going to do more of this and more live things in person again as we all come out into um, not disease-free, but less disease-fearing times ahead. So thank you. Thank you for being on Team Human. Thank you for being here. And uh, gosh, let's keep this going. And thank you for being on Team Human and joining us in the Kibitz Room. If you want to come live to the next Kibitz Room, just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. That will also get you the ad-free version of this show. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaptelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.